much is the way of the world You'll never know Kerry Hermanis, and welcome to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. Looking forward to speaking to you in a minute. It's going to be a good one. Welcome to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front, where we get to know the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies, providing you with real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. To get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here's your host, Tim Banfield. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. Wow, and what an intro that was, and a great way to introduce our very special guest for this episode, Western Australian 40 plus year mining veteran, Kerry Hermanis. Kerry was playing a mandolin which is one of his favourite passions, as you'll see later on, and it's just awesome he could crank it up for us. This is such a wonderful opportunity and a real privilege to have Kerry on the show. Kerry is the chair of Australian Mineral and Development Company, Talisman Mining, stock code TLM. Prior to this, Kerry is the noted founder and former chair of Jubilee Mines, until its acquisition by Xstrata, for $3.1 billion in October 2007, one of WA's most talked about mining deals. This is just a cracker of a story that makes for captivating listing. We learn from Kerry about his upbringing in Darwin, how he started out in mining and managed to fund himself during the really early days through a van selling fish on the beach, his love of exploration, building Jubilee Mines and the discovery of the famous Cosmos Nickel System, and his insights into the acquisition by Extrata and how it all came about. Throw into this his love and passion for meditation and music, and there is so much to take away. So, without further ado, it gives me a huge pleasure to introduce to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front, the Chair of Talisman Mining and all-round good bloke, Mr. Kerry Hermanis. G'day Kerry, and thanks a lot for joining us on Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. It really is great to have you along. Hi Tim, good morning. Yeah, good to see you mate. (laughs) Kerry, look, it's so great you could come and join us. We are really looking forward to this. I've been looking forward to it for a while. It's great we could finally find a time to catch up. For the listener, I just want to start out by giving us, as I do, just a bit of an overview to give everyone an understanding of Kerry's background and position so that we can go forward and everyone has a bit of a perspective. So just bear with me, Kerry. I'm just going to give everyone a little bit of an update. So Kerry is currently the chairman and major shareholder of an Australian-listed mineral development and exploration company, Talisman Mining. He has had a career spanning more than 40 years in the Australian exploration and mining industry. And of note, Kerry was the founder and executive chairman of Jubilee Mines 
a hugely successful West Australian nickel miner, which he established in 1987. Through a combination of exploration success, focused project development and operational consistency, Jubilee Mines grew to become one of the most successful mid-tier miners on the ASX until its acquisition by Extrata, an Anglo-Swiss multinational mining company of the time headquartered in Switzerland for $3.1 billion in October 2007, one of WA's most talked about mining deals. During this period, Kerry led a highly successful geological and operational team, which he helped Jubilee set new benchmarks on the ASX for shareholder returns in the resource sector. He's gone on to do a lot more since, and it's just fantastic to have you on the show. So just awesome, Kerry. We're into it. Thanks. So just a bit of background for our listeners and Finding the Front. One of the main purposes of this podcast is to understand a little bit about the influences and what shaped you into the career and the person you are today and your achievements. And in my research, what I could find was that you're actually born in Adelaide. Yeah, that's right. Dad got uh, stuck in Darwin when the Japanese bombing occurred in 1942, February 1942. Mum and my sister and my mum's sister have been evacuated to Adelaide right. on the SS Montoro, which was actually tracked by a Japanese submarine. Had they seen any troops on it, I wouldn't be here today. Dad went down to Adelaide after the war, took up, retook up his career as a builder. He had been in the works department during the war effort and uh, did some amazing things there during the bombings, including plugging some of the oil tanks that were on fire with canvas and big chunks of wood. Big story there. But uh, anyway, yes, I was born in Adelaide in 1948. But your dad actually immigrated out from Greece in 1917, is that right? Yes, there was a big wave of Greeks, uh, a lot uh, from in, in relative terms from the island of Castellorosa where, where he was born, and my mum's dad was born. They came out in about First World War, around about that time. Some of them didn't have enough money. Dad spent some time in Suez, Port Said, and then Singapore. He learned to speak a bit of Chinese, went to school in Singapore because they didn't have any money. So the family brothers that went ahead had to send money to them to get them out to Australia, and they, they landed in uh, Darwin. Some went to Port Hedland, and, yeah, they were in Darwin from about 1917 as was, say, someone else like uh, Nick Paspaley's father, Nick Senior, from the same island. Is that right? Yeah. So that island, it's fascinating to talk about that island, Castellorizzo. 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 Castellorizzo means red castle. It's actually that castle on the promontory there on the Cavos, it's called, was built by the Knights of St John during the Crusades. And that island, it, in fact, has been conquered so many times you wouldn't believe it. Corinthians, Athenians, the Turks had it for years and years during the uh, Ottoman occupation. The Venetians conquered it, the Romans. In modern times, the Italians, the French, the English burned it during the Second World War so the Germans couldn't use it as a harbour. It's only two kilometres, three kilometres from Turkey and you can see the big Turkish plateau mass standing high above it. Is that right? Yeah, and it's the easternmost island of Greece and... You know, we talked before, there's been a lot of luminaries come out of there because there's nothing grows on the island. It's just a... Well, it's about 12 kilometres squared, isn't it? It's yeah. something like I was just reading up about it. It's, it's quite a tiny island. We, we call it the rock. There's nothing there. There's no water there, nothing. They had to have big cisterns for water, maybe some onions and some figs grow there and a few olives. 
as a result, the people were merchants. They did a lot of trading. It's a great harbour, and so they learned how to trade. And so they were a merchant class of people originally, um, so they were very good at business. Because your great-grandfather lived there with his family from at least 1860, and then your grandfather and father were born there, as well as your mother's father. So there's such a heritage tied up in this small island. And you were saying the Paspalis were in the same boat. Paspalis, Andrew Liveris, and a lot of other uh, well-known and successful people, Greeks, come from there. I mean, my great-grandfather, he's sort of like the legendary generation back then. He lived from 1801 to 1904, and he went there in 1860 to get away from the Turks because the revolution was going on. Yeah, so we were brought up in Darwin. You know, the family went to Darwin, back to Darwin in 1954. Dad was already there working as a carpenter. And I went there in 1954 on the SS Kalinda uh, with the old state ship. And how did you find growing up in Darwin? Because back then, what, how, what was the population of Darwin? Well, 1954, probably seven or 8,000. There was a Greek community. There was a Chinese community, a Chinese Malay community. There was... Italians, Slavs, and a lot of stolen generation kids who lived in the homes outside of Darwin and would come to Darwin Primary School, which was the main school in Darwin at the time. And so I played footy against a lot of those guys, pretty angry kids, Yeah, uh, understandably, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Understandably. So, But I enjoyed my childhood. It was very diverse. It was wild, you know, catching crabs, fishing trod on a stonefish at the age of 10. Oh, goodness. At the famous Lamaru Baths. There a lot of weirdos there. You know, it was the end of the earth in some ways in Australia. That was where a lot of weirdos went. But it was very uh, interesting, you know, a great place to grow up. No shoes. Yeah. Wet season, the monsoon coming in. You know, they were, you know it, was, it was a really incredible place. So with that, you know, your time in Darwin, what did you take away from it in terms of education, awareness around the social upbringing that you had? Well, learn to be grounded. Learned you know better than anyone else. Nobody's better than you. Very diverse, had to mix and live with a lot of different cultures and kids. And uh, the Greek community was, you know, community and family was a really big one I took from that. And to accept other people yeah. of all sorts, just, yeah. just to accept other people. And in a way not even sorry to say this, everybody's a racist in some way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what I took out of that. Yeah. And, and not in a hugely judgmental way, but just everybody's, that's what keeps individual cultures together. Yep, yep. And you also learn to mix with other cultures and, and share and work with them, and that was a fantastic part of it all. Pretty rough diamond I was. Yeah. And uh, so mum and dad decided to uh, send me to a, a boarding school. Yeah, well, I was just going to ask, what a contrast, because I noted that you went... From there to Cranbrook School in Sydney, mm -hmm. one of Sydney's prestigious schools, as a boarder. And how did that come about? Well, actually, mum, who was very churchy, religious, Greek Orthodox. Well, I was an altar boy in the Greek church, by the way, you know, so that's how serious we were about it then. And mum knew the Greek Archbishop of Australia, uh, Archbishop Ezekiel, who actually became a, a very good friend of mine and a mentor. He was a lovely man and uh, learned a lot from him as a kid. I'd visit him sometimes from boarding school when I was allowed out. Yep. And uh, But it was a huge culture shock for me, Sydney and Cranbrook School. 
I didn't really fit in that well. It wasn't a great experience for me, but of course, there's always another side to things, and I learnt a lot. Yeah, right. I remember my mum, she had a cutting sense of humour. She said, one of the famous family jokes, she said, I sent you down there to make a gentleman of you, and I'm writing to ask for a refund. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what happened was, fortuitously in a way, my sister married dental professor Des Kalis in Perth, so they moved me to Christchurch for the last two years of my high school, 65 and 66. And that was a much better and positive experience for me. I, I learned a lot. I got on well, played rugby. We won the rugby those years. Right. And I made a lot of friends here easily. I got into surfing yes. in the 60s. So, yeah, it was great to come to WA at that time in the 60s. So in 1966, you, you're heading out of year 12. Did you have any understanding? We often ask this on Finding the Front. Did you have any understanding of what you might have wanted to do with your life at that point? No, not really. I mean, my mum and dad, uh, being, you know, very forceful, wanted me to be a lawyer. Right. I didn't want to do law. I, I started thinking, and no, I wanted to do, uh, be a geologist or do architecture. But that really developed in 1967. I failed my matriculation because I failed one of the categories, mathematics. They changed this from maths 3 to maths 1 and 2 when I came to Christchurch. I hadn't had no background in that, so I had to repeat 1967 at Leaderville Tech, which I did, which was a great year, which I spent mostly surfing and making up with mathematics. I did mathematics three and excelled in that, and then I did geography and a bit of English just to catch up on my English and things. So I only had half a year study, and the rest of the time was play, and that was a wonderful year. In preparation for the next year, 1968, I went to law school. So you graduated from Leaderville Tech into UWA yes. to do law. Yes. And this is the start of a journey that uh, really was quite interesting because law became your focal point for a while because you did graduate from law. Yes. And then you went into doing law and, and were admitted to the bar. Yeah. Well, I started at law school UWA in 68, completed my law degree in 71, 72 and 73, I did articles, law articles, at uh, quite a prestigious firm. I don't know how I jagged that job, but I did. And what was that firm? Uh, Northmore, Hale, Davy and Leake. It had luminaries like Fred Cheney there. Right. I used to work with Ian Temby, very intelligent lawyer, John Samuel, who became a judge, died relatively young, and some, some other very interesting people worked there. So I was very privileged to do my articles then. I was admitted to the bar in December 73 and uh, January 74 I went backpacking through Asia and through to Greece and Europe, 74, 75 was that. What made you want to get out of law and just go out and live life for a while and backpack? Oh, just, it was a big study for me. Yeah. You know, it was a lot of reading and, uh, you know, I was also burned the candle at both ends, you know, it was the 60s. Yes, yes. And I was experimenting here and there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, all, all things that enrich you, listening to a lot of music and Bob Dylan and the band and the Beatles and so on and so forth. So, you know, I was having a great life. But I had studied so much and read so much. And law's very intense. Wasn't then a bookworm. I am now more. But it was very intense for me. And I was just... And law's a very strictured and structured profession. 
and I'd done my articles. I mean, I enjoyed all that, but then it was time to just break out for a bit and experience the world, which I wanted to do. My, my bag was uh, no bigger than an average backpack, and I lived out of that for two years. So learned a lot. I went to a lot of places and had a lot of experiences. Fantastic. So, Kerry, you did your travel and did your backpacking, but you came back and you worked in law for another four years. Four or five years. Yeah, and I was just going to ask, at that point, you got to the stage where you thought, right, time for a career change, and law was no longer a passion. Well, I realised, you know, I finished up at Legal Aid as a Legal Aid lawyer. I did a lot of prison work, police court work. I did diverse, different types of work there. But then I realised law wasn't for me. I didn't want to sit in an office all my life. And I actually had been doing sculpture at night at art school and drawing and that. And I went and applied to go to Claremont Art School in 1980. Right. And I didn't get in. But of course, from something like that leads to better things, right? So there I was. And my dad, I talked to my dad and I said, look, I want to get out of the law. He said, look, I've got this project. It's a gold retreatment project at Laverton. I'm too old and buggered to do it. Can you do it? So just pause there because I want to flip back to what your dad was actually doing in the Northern Territory. Well, dad was a, uh, a carpenter, just a humble carpenter turned builder of sorts. He was a good builder, actually, a hell of a worker. Like, I mean, that guy put a roof on a house in one day. I mean, he was an amazing worker, my dad, physically, real goer. In the 1930s, he had gotten government jobs out in the bush that other people wouldn't take on, Roper River and Mataranka and these yep. legendary names. And he had developed an interest in prospecting and uh, minerals and started that again in the 1950s, especially when they, uh, Senator Spooner was his name, lifted the ban on the export of iron ore to Japan. Right. Because we had been in a war with them only 12 years before or 20, 15 years before. So Dad had known of some old iron ore deposits out near Roper River back then and went and looked them they weren't successful but then he kept looking and he found uh, an area at a place called Francis Creek outside of Pine Creek yes and found an iron ore mine called the Francis Creek iron ore mine that was his baby and I remember going out there as a kid in the 1950s late 50s 10 or 11 year old watching the exploration process take place drilling and surveyors and all stuff you know putting geological plans together and all of that you know, just looking at it from the outside in. Yes. And I developed a love for that. And I thought, you know, and Dad was very successful. That was a very good, successful operation that shipped iron ore to Japan in the 19, early 1960s, I think they started. And there's a whole setup there at Fort Hill Wharf that was built by the government and, and this venture, which was with Sumitomo Metals, who bought the iron ore. So I saw that whole process happen. From the ground up. From the ground up. Coming back to 1980, I didn't get into art school, and Dad said, here's a project, and I thought, well, hallelujah, I'm going bush. Yes. You know, I Which get, is exactly what you wanted to do. Yeah, which essence. is exactly what I originally wanted to do. Yes. And this was a gold retreatment project with cyanide in, in, in a closed system of vats and things and tanks. But my partner, I inherited two partners. One was Stephen Chu. These are Dad's partners. Dad knew Stephen Chu from the races. Right. And the other one was David Krasnerstein. So there we had a, a three-way partnership, a Greek, a Jew and a Chinaman. Right. And we were <laughs> bound to make money, which we did. But we didn't have the capital at the time and so we had to bring someone else in. But anyway, that led to 
me we finished up settling on that one and uh, made a lot of money out of that the first one and then i went on to, with myself to form other syndicate you know a group of people who retreated tailings back then in the early 1980s so just pause there Kerry did you find your background in law helpful to what you were doing yeah here? well well that was my part of these partnerships or groups. I, right. I did the legal process, although both Stephen Chu and David Krasenstein were lawyers as well in that first one. But then as I went to form syndicates or groups to do redo more tailings, I formed the business part of that and wrote up the agreements and yes. and all those sorts of things and picked up the bits of paper and made them into some, into money, I suppose, you know, so that was But it wasn't always easy through there because I noticed that at a point you spent some time in a caravan selling seafood down at Leighton Beach. Yeah, well, see, what happened was when I left Legal Aid and I inherited this project, it was just the beginning. I had to make it happen. (laughs) The partners that I had then, the two that I mentioned, didn't have the capital, so I had to go and find the capital. I had to get the project built and all that, and I didn't have any money, so I was scrambling around for something to do and uh, I was driving along Leighton Beach one day and I went to buy some fish from a seafood van that was there on the side of the beach. And I went there and anyway, bought some fish and he said, what are you doing here? Oh, he said, I've got a licence from the council. He said, I want to bloody sell the thing actually. I said, do you? I said, how much do you want? He said, five grand. I said, I'll buy it. So I bought this seafood van to give me cash flow for about three years, which I operated on Friday, Saturday, Sundays, every weekend. Gave me cash flow, taught me about retail business. Yes. Taught me about how to go and buy and sell fish. I used to go down to the boats at four o'clock in the morning and buy the meagre cats that we caught in this whole uh, area here. And I learned about, you know, as I said, retail and running business. Running a business. Running yeah. a business. My house in Fremantle smelt of fish because I used to reverse the van in, plug the freezers in again at night and load them up with seafood. How did your mum and dad like that, going from law to the seafood? Well, they liked it and they didn't like it. I mean, Mum, used when they used to come down on the weekends and, and sit there in their car and I'd go, can you just give me a break? <laughs> and Mum would say, she'd talk to the customers and say, he's a lawyer, you know, he doesn't need to do this. <laughs> and I was having the time of my life, you know. <laughs> so uh, so that, that was a great experience as I developed my mineral. And, you know, through going to the gold fields, I started to develop a knowledge of meeting people, a knowledge of hard rock, you know, old mines, started reading the old mining records. And it was then that my first wife was the librarian at the mines department, the geological right. survey. So I used to go in there. That's how I met her. And and she's the mother of our lovely son, Sean. And, you know, I got to learn about, read about the old Yilgarn, especially Western Australian mineral history, and but other places as well. I got so interested in it all in early nineteen, about nineteen eighty three to eighty five, with other people. I went looking for minerals in Greece. Right, found a big mine mineral system there, but the Greeks, believe it or not, were too hard to deal with. But we did uh, find a big mineral system there. That became a mine at some stage. I understand. I even went looking for minerals in Mali. Africa, and even in the late 1980s, I started going to Canada. I moved to Canada in 1988 with my wife then, Pauline, and our son was born there in 1990. Got onto a big mineral system, um, mining deals, yes. and building things in Butte, Montana, one of the great mining centres of the world, actually. Amazing, amazing history. 
of the scale of it, you know, American scale, big thing, 5,000 mile deep pit. Yes. Back then from the 1950s, 60s, 70s, they were mining from 5,000 feet, a mile down, a kilometre and a half down, they were pulling 15,000 tonne of ore a day. A bloody amazing system and so amazing his history. So that was a, a great exercise for me. It didn't really work for us. I had an associate there with me. But we eventually sold that on. It was too big for us to handle and American environmental laws, et cetera, et cetera, right, et cetera. Yeah. It was very difficult to get a mine off the ground in America then. They did. I don't think they made that much money. So I was just really the finder and the... But, I mean, what a great experience. Just oh, to, that was fantastic. Yeah. That was an amazing experience, uh, Butte, Montana. And result of that, saw, visited other mineral areas in America and in Nevada and... So you got a Idaho, yeah. You know, yeah. I've had a pretty diverse ge- geological, geographical history uh, as a layman. One guy called me the best. Peter Langworthy used to work for us at Jubilee. Called me the best lay geologist going, but it's all a lie because I only know a few little key words and things. <laughs> you, know. <laughs> you know. Well, that's a good segue into Jubilee. Uh, so if we just move to 1987, mm-hmm. right? And this mm-hmm. is. You clearly have had a background here of, as you've just highlighted, diverse across geography, across geology, and you understood how a deal worked. In 1987, you floated Sir Samuel Mines and Jubilee Gold Mines on the Australian Stock Exchange. Now, where did you pick up the ground there to do that? How did that unfold? And then we can go forward from there because it's quite a quite a journey and it's it's actually quite a seriously interesting story well as i said before you know from going to the gold fields quite a bit i learned especially in the areas well actually diversely yeah but uh, i started homing in on the areas around leonora and laverton yes and these tenements came via people that i knew who had deals who had property that they wanted to sell which were returned for shares in the company through contacts and through some that I knew myself or had myself and not always successful. But the main Sir Samuel ground, which became Jubilee ground, which became Jubilee mines from Jubilee gold mines when they merged, came from a prospect, a friend of mine by the name of Hugh Wally. And that was the main run that occurred, you know, where Cosmos eventually was discovered. So we're talking there, we're out near Leinster. Yeah, north of Linster, yeah. about 40 kilometres northwest of Linster. You can see Linster from the hill there. There's a there's a big snake-grimming line of hills there that you can see in, in Lake Miranda, which is a, an important place for the local Indigenous people, So yes. who I eventually had to work with intensely as we went on. But, yeah, we originally had that for gold. We were looking for gold at a place called Mossbecker and Carraport, but they were itty-bitty things uh, one of them was mine eventually, but not by us. But, yeah, I had to build a t- team there. Of course, all this goes without saying that you always need good people of different disciplines around you. Yes. So I learnt gradually through that team building. I didn't do very well in the beginning. Well, you quite were, a few you arguments. Were ex- you were an explorer, in essence. Yeah. Through the Sir Samuel mines and the Jubilee gold mines, they were brought together and they were then eventually brought together, but they were floated on the stock exchange in 1987, just three days after the 87 crash, or Black Monday. That's right, yeah. So despite this, these floats got off the ground. 
I held it all together. I just uh, held held firm, yes. and we floated, and we we sort of crashed. You know, there were two companies there. A guy called Dr. Brian Saunders. He helped me with a lot of that, and uh, he's now gone past. We merged the companies in 1991. We, we merged them in 91. Yep. It was the only thing to do. It was a pretty tough time for juniors, and we struggled then. You know, I mean. You nailed it. I really loved the exploration game. I really love finding, developing, delineating, developing, building and running things. Not many people do that whole process. I like the whole process from start to finish. Yes. So we did that and, well, 1994 was a tough year through that period. Then mum and dad died within four months of each other. We had a deal to buy the Bellevue Mill to process our little gold deposit called Mossbecker. Thank God it fell over because later on we would never return to nickel. <laughs> looking yes. Looking for nickel. But in 1994, I, we tried to do a placement, couldn't get it off the ground, tried to do a rights issue. Nobody contributed except me and one other person. I put in about eight or 900 grand, my last penny, my last, well, money then, to s- support the company and do more exploration. Yes. <laughs> that was the game, really, and, and actually... Um, Hardly took a salary then. I, I can't remember what it was, but I don't even know if I did. At that stage, what was the share price of Jubilee? Well, at one time it was nine cents. It dropped to four cents one day. Right. I remember that. We had, a, I think, 120 grand in the bank at some point. So I had to put money in to keep it alive. I just intuitively just wanted to keep going and, and tough it out. So, Kerry, this is a really pivotal part. At this point, you could have said, this is too hard, right? And you're in 94, so you floated in 87. You've joined the companies together in 91. You're at 94. You're down to your last pennies. You've managed to keep the company afloat yeah, and go. Mm-hmm. Now, tell us a little bit, just what is the mindset there? Because it's a totally different ballgame to where you ended up. Was there a gut feel on this? Is this the, the part where your upbringing... You know, you're the underdog in many occasions through your life where you've turned up to Darwin, you've turned up to Cranbrook, you've turned up to Christchurch. Just give us a little bit of a feeling there of how that unfolded. Well, what I haven't mentioned, I had started from some time before that doing things like Tai Chi meditation and practice the thing we can talk about that, the 10 no's. We mentioned that before. Don't give up, never give up and just keep going. Don't complain, don't wallow, don't have issues, get through them, drop them, get on with them. They're just issues and so on and so forth. There's more to those 10 no's. But, so I live my life according to those as best possible. And you embrace that. You had Yeah, that never give up, never give up. You know, we, we all have dark nights of the soul. You've got to push through them. I suppose what those going to Cranbrook and Christchurch boarding schools and, and the growing up in Darwin and the... I suppose I'm blessed. They were very tough experiences, but they also were very beneficial to... Character building. Character building and resoluteness and inner strength. And the meditation things, and you know, a lot of people go, woo, 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 and all this. No, they give you inner strength. They give you inner fortitude. So you were practising meditation in, at 94? Well, from the 70s, yeah. Yeah, from the 70s, uh, right. You know, on and off. Yep. Nowadays, it's an important part of my life, yeah. So, so 94... You had to make that tough decision to keep going Mm -hmm. and you did it, right? Mm -hmm. So here we are. Mm -hmm. You're onwards and upwards at 94, but you had to make a decision around gold or 
And this is where nickel started to come into play. Well, I did a deal in 1996 with Barry Eldridge and Kim Robinson, and they were into nickel down at Maggie Hayes. And they put a bit of money in and took a position and came onto the board in 96, with me having made the decision to turn... Terry Streeter helped in that too, to turn looking for nickel. And we had had some mail and there had been some announcements by, remember old Ron Hawkes from uh, Plutonic? Right. Well, they had the property south of us, which eventually became Jubilees. We bought that off them. But they had a a low-grade thing called the uh, Mount Good Nickel Find. And we did some work on our side of the border and we did some geophysics, some chemistry, some shallow drilling, and then we said, let's put a hole into it. What made you look... Why nickel? Oh, because that was the thing going at the time. Mount Keith was just getting going. Linster was to our south. We had a nickel sniff nearby. The gold was too small. We just got ourselves into Not commercial. It. Not commercial. It was just too small. And so let's look for nickel. And the first thing we looked at was this one, right next to the boundary, and bang, first hole, four metres, five and three metres at 7%, 40 metres under, down. So it was a no-brainer after that. Put more holes into it, pump, 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 buy the land next door, which we did. I got a brief to buy it from the board for $5 million. We paid nine. I just said, we're doing it. Yes. (laughs) And uh, we did. And uh, we bought that property, and that became the whole Cosmos so 1997, this is Cosmos. This is uh, September 97, yep. And how did well, that feel with the discovery? Oh, it was just fantastic. It was just <laughs> having gone from 94. <laughs> having a piece of core, diamond, we eventually diamond drilled it. It was August, September, I can't remember, September. A piece of core with beautiful, massive sulphides running through it. I had known about massive sulphides from 1969-70, uh, Nickel Boom and Poseidon and Norton, Tasmanex and all that, because my dad was involved in that. He was a prospector in that. And so it was always this um, lure, the ultimate prize is massive sulphides. And here I was, and they weren't successful out it in 1969-70. They got iron sulphides, but it wasn't nickel. They thought it was nickel for a while and got into trouble for it, but they all got carried away. And there was a big investigation back then, but this was real nickel sulphides. And now, you know, the, the Cosmos system is getting back into business just right now with independence. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a history. We can go into the history of what happened. when. Well, so I was just going to say, for the listener, you can just see Kerry's body language light up when you look at and reminisce on the drill core and, what, and seeing this nickel discovery. I just want to go back, 94 to 97, here you are, there's a fork in the road, you've chosen nickel, and this is the outcome. It continues from there, though. The lead time into developing the concentrate. So you, you've acquired the ground, you've got the results. Well, we delineated a 30,000 tonne ore body, which is quite small in today's terms, but the grade was there and it was shallow, 40 metres down, so we had to take 40 metres of overburden off. We had to delineate it, do all the metallurgical studies, design a plant, concentrate a plant, have it built, get all the permitting, do all the native title agreements, get all the finance. And uh, from 1997, September 97, and we started producing, did that whole process of development from nothing, discovery hole, to an operating plant, the first concentrate in April 2000, outside of two years, close to two years from discovery, 
to produce in concentrate, which is pretty massive. We had to do our offtake contract. Luckily, Inco at the time, which is now owned by Vale, the Canadian major at the time, nickel major, they were in desperate need of, of quality feed. This was good quality feed. So we did all of that and started producing in April 2000. And uh, we went from, you know, better to better and better. Uh, we improved as we went and started making a profit pretty quickly and started paying dividends pretty quickly. Of course, you need a team. I was going to ask, at this point, you've had to assemble a, a team to do this. That was my biggest task, assembling a team. So then mm. I had to look at all these things of what is leadership. Well, it was really bringing a team together in a way that you create the theme, you create the vision, and you get you enrol people behind you and you find the right people. I mean, I had a very brilliant CFO, Gary Lethridge. He did a great job. Uh, he was the second one. Yes. <laughs> but he was the one that helped bring it together. Tony Rivera was a discovery geologist, but he went on to do his own thing and I got Peter Langworthy in. He was a great exploration geologist. And eventually I got Brian Dawes, who came from the Maggie Hayes group down there, and he was a great engineer. And so on and so forth. There were some very good people that I was lucky enough to bring together. And my attitude was, you know, board meetings. One hour, one and a half hours, not too much talking, no interrupting, consensus. What do you think everybody's... Because everybody's got something valuable to add. Yes. And don't interrupt each other. There's always... People have always got something to add, you know. And you bring it all together and then through that somehow find consensus. The, the natural answer will come. And being a leader is leading by example as a leader, not a boss. I, I didn't see... Empower the, people. Yeah, empower people to actually... Oh, that's what I used to do. I used to give people a lot of rope and just talk to them. If, if they're straying, talk to them. People have always got it inside them. And even when there were blues, you know, between people, arguments, bring them both in, have a chat. Did you say, think what you said? How do you think it would be if so he, they said that to you? And so on and so forth. So, you know, you might like each other, and that, but you're both in this together. Yep. So let it go and get on, you yes, know. Yes. And, and so it was like that. So we were a, a, a pretty happy team. Yeah. And a successful one at and, that. Yeah. The two things that I was very – three things that I was very proud of was that, building a team. Secondly, building the project so quickly – and getting it going successfully. And the third thing was paying dividends. I always wanted, couldn't believe how companies keep the money for themselves all the time. Yes. You know, yes, keep some money for development, but share it around. That's what it's for. So in, I mean, this has probably been surpassed many times since, but during my reign there, or when we had that going, we paid 58% of our profits tax paid to shareholders in, in the form of dividends. Very well received. Yeah, 58%. So I was very proud of that. Give it back to the shareholders because that's what the money's for. Gosh, thanks for sharing. I think, Kerry, when you look at this, we're leading right now into 2007. The company's got full momentum. Mm -hmm. Now, with the shares and the company moving and flying almost, you talk about shareholder returns there was an increasing demand for those commodities mm -hmm. at that period. And you as Jubilee's chairman and major shareholder made a decision around the company 
and its sale. Right. Now, just talk us through that because this is this is what leads up to the deal. Right. What made you think at that point in time when the company is paying great dividends, it's on a growth trajectory to put the company up for sale? Well, there are a number of factors. People might laugh at this, but the inner work, the meditation, the Tai Chi, yoga, those sort of things, they give you an ability to sniff the breeze, to actually feel things, not just think things. And that's a really important difference. Most people don't believe in that. The scientists don't believe in it. I do, through personal experience over and over. So it came to me one morning, the company needed a bigger balance sheet to go deeper. We were already pretty deep. We needed more, a bigger balance sheet. Secondly, I was just approaching 60. Yes. It was a milestone event in my life. Thirdly, the sniffing part, the market was going to crash. It was overheated and I was sure it was going to crash. And I was actually meditating on my floor where I do my meditation there and yoga in the mornings. I did it there today, same place. I was going, God, if there is a God, please help me. What do I do? What do I do? Really? And I was on my knees and, and I heard the words very strongly, sell, sell, sell. True experience. So I went in that morning, a couple of hours later, said, guys, come in. Let's all come in. I think we should sell the company. It's gonna, the market's going to crash. We need a bigger. We need to raise a lot of money to get go deeper and for the next thing. I'm pretty buggered. I've ha- we've had a good run. We're at our peak. Now's the time. Yes, 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 yes. Let's do it. So we had already shared a bit of information with likely people had knocked on the door. I said no, but this time we sort of went out there and uh, put it out and said put your bids in in a few weeks' time, and that's how it all eventuated. It all happened over a weekend. Just with regards to the market, what made you feel like it was overheated? So we are 07 and it's well documented what happened in the 08, early 09, right? The GFC hit. And it's quite interesting that you started this journey on the back of an 87 crash. And here we are approaching another major, major crash in the financial system and you're thinking the way you're thinking. Well, look, you know, I'm no expert. I, I just had a very strong feeling that it was overheated and that um, markets had gone up too much too quickly and nickel price, you know, was strong at the time. None of these things could stay there forever. Yeah. It was just time, really, and I just had a sense that, you know, it's not only me. You talk to people, right? You read things. You, you, you know, you, you tune in. Yep. And so for me, life is in that situation, thinking, learning, and feeling. And so it just felt right and was very strong. Go for it now. So for the listener, in 2007, in one of WA's most well-known deals, Kerry sold Jubilee Mines to the Swiss giant Extrata for $3.1 billion at the peak of the mining boom. Now that provided you a pretty significant windfall yourself. Yes. I do want to say I didn't sell it. The company did. There was a board involved, very good board yep. of directors. There was a very good CFO and a team that made that decision. The quantum of A, the $3.1 billion in that period of time to a Swiss company of mm-hmm. that size and mm-hmm. scale mm-hmm. and then the negotiation phase through there, they, they offered a $23 cash a share, mm-hmm. which was a 35% premium mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. 
Kerry, you must have just been almost. Did you have to pinch yourself? Well, of course, <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> just, amazing. Just deal. naturally, <laughs> but you know, um, that was a standard fare those days. Um, Thirty-five to thirty-eight percent, I think, was the range of premium that you could get. So we were seventeen dollars ten on the Friday, and we announced the deal on the Monday at twenty-three dollars. We tried to get a bit more, and the guy came back from. Uh, investment broker from uh, Morgan Stanley, who were our investment bank at the time, just came back and said, uh, I got stabbed, mate. It's 23 bucks or they're walking. Called the board into a separate meeting from all the team, whole team in a secret place in West Perth. I called the board in, said, sell, 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 $23. Yes, the shortest board meeting in history, about one minute. (laughs) (laughs) And let's take it and grab it. And we did. I know there were parts of their organisation who were not happy with the deal, but they were after market share. The Russians, Norilsk, had just picked up the stuff in the south there. They wanted market share, and so they paid the premium. Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty amazing deal at the time. Oh, well, congratulations. And, yeah, thank uh, you. Yeah, and I'm forever grateful. Well, I think the purpose of this conversation is more to talk about the journey to where that, that occurred. The result, really, when you look back, is uh, the accumulation of a lot of hard work. And there's a bit of fair bit of risk taking involved there too, if we put into perspective that '94 period. So, interestingly, a couple of years later, and this is, we we all understand that the GFC occurred, and a couple of years later, Glencore acquired Xstrata, and the two merged together. And in 2014, Glencore put Cosmos on the market. And they sold Cosmos Nickel Operation to Western Areas for $24.5 million in 2015. And it just highlights that timing was everything. Yeah, you know, with, with deals, timing's number one. Yeah. I remember Danny Hill saying this years and years ago, timing's number one. You've got to get the timing right. And timing is about tuning in. Yes. <laughs> and not believing in your own BS and reading the signs, sniffing the air seeing what's going on out there and trends as best you can. And you can never get it all. You never always get it right, of course, you know. Well, Kerry, you managed to read it pretty well. Okay, so Kerry, just with regards to life after the event, after the Jubilee sale, Mm -hmm. and and this is quite interesting for the listener because after an event like that, you have the opportunity to take stock of your life. (laughs) You can really reassess and... And you've got options. Yes. You chose to continue in mining and you became a major shareholder and chair of Talisman Mining. Yeah. I actually originally went into that for the iron ore, for the one mana iron ore. Yeah. I mean, actually what happened was I tried to, I invested in a few stocks, but I tried to retire. But then I got involved with a very well-known, world-famous bloke called Dr. John D. Martini. And I talked to him about retirement and he said, Retirement? What's retirement? You get a, a Rolex watch and shrivel up and die. You got to, the things that keep you going are the things that get you out of bed in the morning. What are they? And I said, I like creating deals. I like building things. Yes. Putting teams together. Also want to give something back to mankind. They were the things. So I want to talk about MMA, Mindful Meditation Australia. That's very important. But about Talisman, look, there were people there who are still there. But I just said after some point, look, I'm the largest shareholder. My name is known in the business. I'm good at exploration. I love exploration. 
let me be the chairman. So I moved into the chairmanship about three years ago, having realised that retirement's... Not for you? Not for me. (laughs) I'm a very active sort of guy, have a very active mind, and I wanted to build something again. I wanted to find something, you know, exploration, mineral exploration's in my blood. So we're a mineral exploration company. We had sold one mana for a royalty... And which we now receive every month, we receive a royalty check from thank you, Chris, Chris Ellison's um, mineral resources for the, for the one mana thing, which they need, use for blending one of their products. And so that's been the life support system of Talisman. We also sold our share in the Springfield copper deposit to Sandfire Resources, and for about $76 million, people forget that. And we repaid the shareholders by way of capital repayment or dividend about 16 cents a share. They're now trading at about 14 or 15. We had a very frustrating year last year in New South Wales where our main tenements are in the Cobar district, Lachlan Fold Belt, because we couldn't get on the ground. Physically, it was so wet, we couldn't get a drill rig on the ground for the whole year. So now we're drilling. Our main target is copper gold or base metals, strategic base metals. Lachlan Fold Belt, and we're, we're drilling right now. We'll be drilling all year, hopefully. And that's keeping you busy on a professional front. Maybe just if we could just expand on a few general questions around your views on a few things. And, and I think if we could just start, and you've, you've talked about this before, meditation. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know you've got a big role to play with Mindful Meditation Australia, Mm-hmm. And and that is really something you're passionate about. Well, it is because I want to give something back. You know, always have to give something back to help mankind, help the planet. I'm very passionate about the planet and, you know, our children and our grandchildren and the health of the planet and all that. So I had a lunchtime some years ago with the Dalai Lama and I said, look, I want to do something and I want to give something back to mankind. I know it's the inner search from meditation and my own processes. I know that, you know, how do you think I should do it? And I was sitting across the table from him as we are now, and he said, start with the children. The other P, older people are too far gone. Start with the children. So that's when I started the foundation of Mindful Meditation Australia, which is my own, funded it myself. And uh, it's about going into schools primarily primary and secondary schools and teaching the teachers and the principals, get the principals championing, to actually teach the kids meditation and mindfulness. And it's pretty basic stuff. It's teaching them again how to breathe. We teach children how to learn to breathe and how to relax and calm themselves through mindfulness and calm themselves through breathing and and sitting still, whether it be music focusing on the breath or a body scan with your eyes closed, sitting still. All of these things are just, you know, I remember talking to these professors who wanted to research it and they said, oh, the curriculum committees aren't going to like this stuff. It's another program. I said, no, it's not another program. It's an essential, simple human tool to deal with all the programs. So I do know we've, we've taught between seventeen and 20,000 students. Right, okay. But I'd really like to expand this, um, and now we're looking at that. I'd really like to expand it to the East Coast and so on and so forth, uh, to other schools. We're looking at some schools in South Australia. I mean, I want to expand it quickly. Yeah, sure, sure. And help the children. Yes. and he- So it's a generational thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me about your passion for music. 
and in particular that beautiful instrument of yours, the mandolin? Uh, well, I love ma- music. I started late. I had this sort of bung finger from the SS Kalinda. I just love music. You know, music's for everyone. I play mandolin. I'm not very good at it. I'm actually a B grader, but I love it. <laughs> I mean, I you came to my event the other night yeah. and you saw some fabulous musicians, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not one of them, but I, it's still a beautiful... I mean, when I'm not with my partner, she's somewhere else staying with friends or family, I sleep with my mandolin on the bed. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love uh, and I, so I collect mandolins. I collect classical mandolins uh, of the American, English, European style, not the Italian style. I just love the sound of them. They're just enchanting and uh, easy to travel with. My other passion is sculpture. I do one significant sculpture a year. You can't show people sculpture on this uh, audio, but I'm just uh, my latest one. I'm so excited about. It's being cast into bronze this week, and it's a size and a half head of the phantom goes to walks never dies <laughs> right i'll show you a picture of it later so i'm making a few of those i'll make about three or four of those of the phantom and uh, look i'll show you oh wow so for the listener we've now got a picture of the f- head of the phantom clay in clay in clay ready to be to bronzed. Made, in, made into be bronzed <laughs> uh that's that's really interesting kerry yeah so i love my sculpture i like Sculpture's a very uh, calming thing, playing with clay and that, you know, and uh, made a few things. I make one significant one a year with help. I like working with people in teams. Everybody has a different skill base, you know. Oh, that's just fantastic. I'm very conscious of time, so I just wanted to say thank you so much for sharing with us today on this podcast. It's been really, really something that you've been able to express from the heart and you've given us a really good, I would say, thorough insight into where you've come from and how you've got there. The highs and the lows and the ways you've dealt with it and the opportunities it's given you. So, look, on behalf of all of us at Euros Hartleys, thanks for coming on Finding the Front. We really do appreciate it and look forward to catching up again soon. Thank you very much, Tim. It's been enjoyable for me too. Thank you. Good on you, mate. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Euros Harley's Finding the Front. This podcast is for general information purposes only. Please check out eurosharleys.com for more information. Euros Harley's holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.